0: What gets you going in the morning? Coffee. I was going to say, for some people it's their alarm clock, for others it's coffee, and I heard a number of coffees out there already, and I will say a hearty amen to that. For others, it may be the sound of a crying baby or other loved ones who are getting themselves ready. Maybe the motivation to get a task completed for the day. Maybe the motivation is simply getting up so that you can go to work and get paid for that week. What gets you going in the morning? It may be fairly easy to identify what gets you going in the morning, but I wonder what keeps you going each day. What is it that keeps you motivated to, to keep moving forward day after day? I mentioned that there are some, especially around the holidays, who find it difficult to keep themselves motivated and moving forward daily. For some life is just too difficult, too burdensome, and the holidays remind them of the things that they've lost, not the things they have to be thankful for, but rather the things and perhaps the people who they've lost. For the believer, perhaps there is daily a reminder of our sin and the burden of that. Perhaps we are daily reminded of the sin of others. The fact that we live in a fallen world and all of the difficulties that come as a result of that with all of these pitfalls and problems with all of our duties and distresses again Christian I ask you what keeps you going every day well we're returning to the psalms this morning after a bit of a break by way of reminder the psalms are considered by some to be a songbook for the people of God the psalms are a compilation of hymns of praise Poems of meditation on the goodness of God and prayers. One of the many benefits of the Psalms is that they demonstrate and validate the whole gambit of emotions experienced by the people of God as they seek to live a life of faith before him. There are Psalms of praise and Psalms of lament. There are Psalms of thanksgiving and Psalms of complaint. There are prayers for blessing and prayers for judgment. There are Psalms that begin in the depths of despair but end in the height of confidence. There are individual psalms and corporate psalms. There are psalms that speak of worship, psalms that speak of work, psalms that speak of child rearing, and just general family life. However, in the midst of such variety, there's always one thing that rings true in the psalms. God is always present. Not only is God always present, but his people are always clearly urged to be dependent upon him, to look to him, to trust in him. Our psalm for this morning is no different. Psalm 121 is a song of praise intended to remind the people of God of exactly why we are so dependent on him. It is in the category of psalms designated as a song of ascent, meaning they were these are songs that were sung by Israel while they were traveling up the mountain, so to speak, to where Jerusalem sat. They would sing psalms like this as they traveled up to Jerusalem to worship, worship to the various feasts and sacrifices that were required of them in the law. The song was intended to remind Israel, this one in particular, that God is a keeper for his people. And so for us, as we consider our journey in life through the many complications and difficulties that we face in life, the losses that we've suffered the things that we have and the things that we have not. As members of the body of Christ, as we consider our journey on the way to the celestial city, this psalm is a reminder that in spite of all of what we may encounter, we're still called to praise. And ultimately, we're called to confidence and to trust in the God who is our keeper. I'm going to read Psalm 121 for for us this morning. And then I'll give us a brief outline and we'll work through it. Psalm 121. I up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for your word, which as Jesus prayed in John 17 is truth. We thank you that you sanctify us by your truth and that today we have the privilege of sitting around your word together. We do pray that you would do your sanctifying work in us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively would be acceptable in your sight. For, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. On well, in terms of an outline, the psalm is organized very neatly into couplets, The first part of the psalm is in verses 1 and 2. These are kind of, this is kind of like an introductory statement declaring that the Lord is the help of his people. The remaining verses 3 through 8, and we'll break it down a little further as we get to them. These verses describe how the Lord is the help of his people. So we see first that the Lord is the help of his people. And then we'll see how the Lord is a help of his people. Let's look at the first part, verses 1 and 2. That we come before the Lord in praise because he is a help for his people. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Well, again, this is called a song of ascent, As it would have been sung by the people of God as they went up to Jerusalem to worship. Many have noted that there is a change of pronouns between verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 through 8 there's a shift from my pronouns to you pronouns. Some have suggested that this was to be sung almost as a responsive reading. Perhaps the people of God were to sing the first two verses. Maybe a priest or worship leader sung the next part back to them or some kind of configuration like that. It's also possible that the change in pronouns is more thematic or rather a product of This just being Hebrew poetry. In other words, there isn't necessarily two parts being sung by different people, but rather one person is speaking to himself. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we need to encourage ourselves in the truth. We certainly should take every opportunity to remind one another of the truth. If we consider this to be sung um, as a responsive reading, that's what they would have been doing. They would have been reminding one another of the truth. And really, we do that as we gather together every Sunday morning and as we sing. I've said this many times before. One of the reasons why we sing the songs we sing is because they remind us of truth. And as you sing to me and I sing to you, we are encouraging one another with what is true. But again, it's also important for us to make sure that we're reminding ourselves of what is true. The truth that has always kept the people of God going is the reality that God is our help. And again, that's the essential truth that this psalm is communicating to us. It's what the people of God were reminding themselves of as they went up to Jerusalem. Again, look at the words of verse 1. I lifted my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? These are the words of a pilgrim, a traveler. Again, he's traveling from his hometown, his home city, where he could have been located anywhere in the boundaries of Israel. From there to the city of Jerusalem. For some pilgrims, this would have been a treacherous journey. Physically traveling would have been hard. It would also have been dangerous over many hills, through many valleys, perhaps in danger from robbers, dangers from wildlife. And then there's the reality that they were leaving their homes in order to travel up to Jerusalem. We don't often consider such journeys in, unless we're talking about Christmas time, because we usually think about Mary and Joseph making the journey to uh, be a part of the census, right? And how difficult that travel would have been. Well, it would have been that same kind of travel for the people of Israel as they're going as frequently as they needed to in accord with the law up to Jerusalem from their homeland. These travelers would have needed to leave their home to find some sort of temporary lodging to worship and serve the Lord according to the law. One thing that's very clear in the psalm is that they would have needed help for their journey. And the reality is that they acknowledge that they needed help. Contrary to popular misconception, the people of God, the Christian does not claim perfection. The Christian does not claim to have it all together, to have no needs, to have no troubles. We do sometimes struggle. We sometimes lose our jobs and need to find a replacement. We sometimes have financial issues. Sometimes we're just not good with money. We're sometimes sick. And that sickness may be healed or it may not be healed. Sometimes that sickness leads to death. Sometimes Christians have relationship troubles, husband and wife relationships, parent and child relationships, friend relationships, neighbor relationships, coworker relationships. Sometimes we're just struggling with sin in our own heart, in our own life. The writer of Hebrews talked about the, the, uh, the sin that so easily entangles us. We all know what that means. Sometimes we just need help making a decision, a major life change, a new place to live, a new job, a new school, a new church. Christians need help. It's not a shameful thing. It's not wrong for a Christian to need help. It's not abnormal to need help. I've said this before, but the abnormal thing in Christianity is not that we need help. It's when we refuse to acknowledge that we need help. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Another thing that's clear in this psalm from the very beginning is though the people of God needed help, though their lives were not perfect, they didn't stop coming. you see that? They didn't stop going to worship. They didn't give up on what we call in theology the means of grace that God has provided for them in commanding them to come up to worship. In contemporary language, they showed up every Sunday morning. Even when there was trouble in their life, even and especially when they needed help, they kept coming to the service, to the gathering of God's people. I don't have to say how often that's not true. How often those who struggle, those who need help, just stop coming. They stop availing themselves of the means of grace that God has provided. They stop coming to the gathering. They stop engaging in the life of the body. They cease to experience the encouragement and comfort here. They stop hearing the preaching of the word of God. They stop reading the word of God themselves. They simply stop lifting up their eyes to the hills from whence comes their help. I wonder if that's you this morning, if you've been tempted to stop coming. If you yourself hasn't been tempted to stop coming, perhaps, you know, someone else who has. We call the gathering of God's people a means of grace. For that reason, we need each other. The body of Christ was designed so that we would grow as we use our gifts and love to build up one another, according to Ephesians 4. We're commanded to gather together specifically to encourage one another, according to Hebrews chapter 10. If you're in a place in life where you need help, the best place for you to be is among the people of God and before the face of God as often as you can. The children of Israel, by this confession, acknowledged that they need help in life. And so they continued to come. As God had commanded them. They kept going and they kept lifting up their eyes. And ultimately, they didn't keep coming because they felt good about themselves or about their situation or because they thought that maybe the difficulty would pass. They kept coming because of who God is. Look again at the text. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Who is the help of God's people? The one to whom they turn when help is needed. He is the Lord. This is the name God has given to his people through Moses. This is who he is. His name speaks of his character. He is not a God. He is the God, the true and living God. He is the I am, the one who simply is. He he has the epitome of of being within himself. He depends on no one and nothing else for existence. We call him the pre-existent one. The self-existent one. This is how he's revealed himself to the sons of Israel. And from there, that time forward they have continued to refer to him in this way. Names are important. The world will claim to know who God is. They may worship a God. They may speak of God all the time. They're not necessarily worshiping the true and living God. There was a report put out, and I think Dr. Al Mohler commented on this in the briefing this past week. And the report was basically saying that people nowadays are starting to have more experiences with the divine. And that was supposed to be an encouraging thing somehow. And Dr. Mohler said that really, that, that really means nothing. It doesn't matter if people are sensing or having experiences with the divine. If they don't know who the true and living God is, then they really don't know anything. Having experience with the divine is not the key to Christianity. The key to Christianity, even as Jesus said in John seventeen three, is to know the true and living God. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You cannot say, you know, God, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't know him in that way. I wonder, do you consciously consider him this way? The Lord is not like any other God, any other supposed God from any other religion. To be a Christian is to believe in the true and living God and to say that unapologetically. It is to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is to believe in the God of Israel, the God who revealed himself as the I am. It is to believe him to be unique, to believe him to be, again, the only God in all of his glory, with all of his perfections. Do you consciously consider him that way? When you think of your God, A.W. Tozer said that if you conceive of God in any way other than how he has revealed himself, that is the essence of idolatry. Paul said that in Romans chapter one, one of the major complaints against the unbelieving world is that they exchange the truth of God for a lie. When you think of God, do you consciously think of him as the one who revealed himself again as the I am? the true and living God do you think of him that way or have you exchanged the truth of who he is for a lie because how you think about him is going to determine how or if you approach him for help when you need it our text goes on he is the Lord the one who made the heaven and the earth Again, names are important, and here he qualifies the name of God. He is the Lord, again, the Lord who is the creator God. We read from the Apostles' Creed earlier, and it began with a very very um, familiar confession. We believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. But again, why is that important? All of what may trouble us is a product of creation. All of what may disturb us is a part of creation. If God has created all things, certainly he has power over all things yes but again when you think of god when you think of our god do you consciously think of him as the god who made the heavens and the earth that is the measure and power of his power and authority that's why there really is no other help for us i mean to whom else would you turn I think we're naturally inclined to search our own wisdom, our own understanding, our own strength for answers for help. We may be inclined to ask those closest to us, a good friend, family, or neighbor. We may be inclined to ask an expert, right, those, maybe a teacher of ours, maybe a psychologist or counselor, maybe some influencer that you follow on social media, but to whom else will you really go for help? the one who is a part of creation or the one who made it all? Again, Christian, as you travel on your way to the celestial city, do you consciously actively consider that God, the true and living God, the Lord, the I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you consciously consider that the one Who we call father is that God, the maker of heaven and earth. And that there's nothing too great for him. Again, part of the point of the psalm is to remind us of that fact. That we can praise the Lord and that we ought to seek the Lord precisely because he is a help to his people. The Lord, the pre-existent, self-existent creator of heaven and earth, he is the one who is a help to his people. Now the question again is how? How does the Lord help his people? And the rest of the text describes that. We have a description of how he helps his people in verses 3 through 8. The text says there, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. I think often when we think of needing help, we think of it as a momentary thing something happens and then I need help, right? It's kind of like when we're traveling on the road and um, we see gas stations that we pass along the road, but we don't really pay attention to gas stations all that much until our needle starts to get closer to E, right? When the needle gets closer to E, then we start looking for a gas station. If the needle is not close to E, we don't even consider, we're probably looking at restaurants on the way, right? Like somewhere we can stop to get a bite to eat. We're not worried about a gas station at that point. And sometimes we treat God that way. Sometimes in the course of life, we just, we just don't consider God. We don't think of him. We don't lift up our eyes to him because we don't need help. Or at least we think we don't need help. We treat him like that gas station. Oh, I, I know I can go to him when I need to. I know I can go to church service when I'm, when I'm feeling really bad about myself, right? I know I can go there. I know I can ask a brother or a sister for prayer when, when I really need it. I know I can pick up my Bible, dust the, you know, the, the dust that kind of collects over the course of the weeks. Like I can dust that off and I can open it and find something to read when I really need help. The text in Psalm 121 does not present God as gas at a station. It presents God as gas in our tank, the gas that is ever present with us, the gas that is present and active in our lives, throughout the course of our lives, as we travel throughout life. The word keep in the English is repeated six times in these six verses. When we do Bible study on Wednesday evenings, we're talking about how to study the Bible. and One of the things that I've encouraged our folks to look for is repeated words and phrases And that shows us what's being emphasized in the text. The fact that God is a keeper is being emphasized over and over again in this text. And the word in the original can be translated to keep, to watch, or to preserve. Some have suggested the translation of guardian with reference to the Lord. He is always present. He's not just the one that you go to at some point when you need help. He's the one who stays with you. He keeps you. He watches over you. He guards your way. That's what these verses describe here. And that's how we need to think about him. Let's take a look at the first part here. The first two verses. Verses three and four. How is the Lord a help to his people? First, the Lord will never slumber. The Lord will never slumber. It says in verses 3 and 4, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Making a long, treacherous journey from one place, one's place of residence to Jerusalem would have provided many opportunities to slip, if you can imagine. Even making their way up the mountain might have provided opportunities for their foot to slip. There was a very real danger of slipping on the road during such travel. So you need your wits about you. You need to be constantly vigilant. You need to stay vigilant on the road and you need to stay vigilant even when you sleep. There were often night watches that were established so that someone was always watching. Listen again to the promise. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. The first part of that line, he Will not let your foot be moved is indicative of his willingness to help. He's not willing to allow your foot to be moved, to allow your foot to stumble and fall as you travel through life. The second part affirms this, he who keeps you will not slumber. The word for slumber there suggests someone taking a break, someone taking time off of their duty, perhaps someone who's indifferent to their responsibilities. The point is, that's not who the Lord is. He is never indifferent. He has a singular focus. He won't fall down on the job. He won't fall asleep during the night watch. The Lord will stay ever vigilant. His strength will not wane. He will keep you from falling. Again, verse four is an affirmation. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, I want to make sure you understand this. I wonder, have you ever had someone act indifferent towards you? You know how frustrating that can be? One of the ways that God has been working on my heart and sanctifying me is by allowing me to walk with my wife through her frequent and prolonged health concerns. One of them has been us working for many years through with her severe migraine headaches. I've had headaches before, but I've never had a migraine that I know of. And even if I have, I know I've never had a migraine to the severity that she has. She's gone at some points in our lives, days, even weeks or more at a time with such severe migraines to the degree that she's been bedridden. Not really able to engage or interact or function. Now all of that is just background to what I'm about to say because in recent years, we've been finally been able to secure some medication that's helped her. It hasn't completely rid her of the migraines, but it has helped significantly. And you know how things work between doctors and insurances, right? Like she has this one doctor, and the doctor stopped taking our insurance, so we have to find another doctor who will be able to not only see her but also help her with these particular medications because these specific medications have been helping, and so we don't want to try something different or, or deviate from that at all because this is what's been helping. And so we're working through that whole process, right? And um, we go to this new doctor, and... Um, This new doctor seems to have completely checked out. And I don't know if he does this with all of his patients or if it was just her, but he was completely and totally just passive and unresponsive. I mean, indifferent is the first word that comes to my mind when she went to him for help like not considering her needs, not asking her any questions. You know, you go to a doctor, and sometimes it gets a little annoying. They ask you 1,001 questions. He asked virtually no questions. And um, when she explained, you know, the medica- medical medication situation, he just, just wasn't really all that helpful. And, and I tell you, it took a lot in me, and I'm just being honest with you guys right now, it took a lot in me not to go to the doctor's office and have a conversation with this fella. Um, I mean, in part, just because there's been so much trouble, right? And, like, she's experienced so much difficulty just over the course of of this time and dealing with migraines, and now we found something that works, and this guy is just completely checked out. So y'all can pray for me to make sure you don't read about in the news, you know, some local pastor who um, loses his pastor card for having some not great conversations with a doctor, but... When you go to someone for help and they're indifferent towards you, that's heartbreaking. That can be world changing for some people. And I think sometimes God is quiet, right? Sometimes God is still, but that doesn't mean he's indifferent. He may be quiet. He may be still. And sometimes we wonder, does he know, does he care about my situation? God will never fall asleep on the job. This psalm is affirming for us that he is never indifferent. He has a singular focus, and that is your good. And he will not slumber until that is accomplished. Paul affirms that in Romans chapter 8, doesn't he? God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. The Lord will never slumber. Let's look at the second part. The Lord is a shade for his people. Verses five and six. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Lord shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Again, the illustration is of a pilgrimage that for some would have taken place over multiple days of travel. So the intensity of the sun during the day and the cold of the night would have been a very real concern for them. The text affirms, again, the Lord is your keeper. Again, the Lord, the preexistent, self-sufficient creator of heaven and earth, that one, that God, the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is your keeper. He watches over you. He is your guardian. The text continues, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. Shade covers, shade protects Particularly, again, from the raging sun. The idea of your right hand often signifies strength. Some have suggested that it signifies intentionality. We've used the phrase, whatever you put your hand to do, this may have been similar. Your right hand signifies intentionality, purpose. If we bring the idea of strength in, and this is something you're putting your effort into, whatever you put your hand to do, whatever you're working on, what you're pursuing. In this case, for them, it would have been their travel up to Jerusalem But whatever that is, the Lord is your shade, he is your guardian, he is your keeper. And he does that all the time. Look at the next verse. The sun shall not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. And since this is poetry, the concepts of day and night are meant to signify total coverage of the day. It doesn't matter if it is in the morning or the evening. The Lord is always there to protect you, to see you through, to help you on your way, to aid you in your efforts. I wonder, do you believe that? Do you believe the Lord is your keeper, that he is your shade, that he will watch over you in all of what you put your hand to do for his glory? Do you believe that God is for you? Do you think in those terms when you think about your life and you think about your relationship with the Lord? Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We often quote this passage when it's time to pray and we should. But I wonder if you've ever thought long about the implications of the words there. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. All that we can ask or think he can do further farther than that. All that we can ask or think, he can do far more than that. All that we can ask or think, he can do far more abundantly than all of that. How do we know he can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think as a church? Well, it's according to the power that is at work in us. The power that is at work in us is all of what he said in chapters one and two. It's all of what God has invested in his church. From before the foundations of the world, God has been working on this this idea, this, this group of people, he has been working on setting them apart, sanctifying them for his purposes, for his glory. So that power that is at work in us is evidence that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Well, what, what would he withhold from us? What would he fail to help us to do if God has invested this much in the church? The church has been called to make disciples. For that, we need to preach the gospel. We need the word of God to be ministered by the spirit of God to the hearts of those who hear. Do you think that God would fail to do that when we go and we preach? If we were willing to just go and proclaim the truth of the gospel message, do you think God will fail to see to it that his word goes forth? If you believe that, if you believe that God is your shade, that he will enable you to accomplish what you put your hand to do, then why don't we preach more? Why don't you proclaim the truth of the gospel more? Why don't you share with that family member who you think will reject the gospel? With that neighbor who you think will be indifferent? With that coworker who you're not really sure what they believe? With that classmate? Why don't you take that track and hand it out on the bus, at the supermarket, at the kids' soccer game, or the grandkids' soccer game, whatever it may be. Why don't you engage more with the gospel? If you believe that God is able to do far more abundantly and that his power is already at work in you as a part of his church, then why not have the same confidence that Paul did in Romans chapter 116, that the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe? Why not just preach it? The church has also been called to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is what God has called his people to do for that. We need the spirit of God to enable us. His people to use their gifts to build up one another in love so that the body of Christ will become a mature man to look more like Jesus in this life, in this world. Do you think that God would fail to enable us to do that? Do you think God is interested in us doing that? When was the last time you, not somebody else, not your neighbor, not the pastor, when was the last time you used what you know to be your spiritual gifts to encourage somebody who's sitting next to you in the pew? When was the last time you went out of your way to use what you know God has gifted you to do to build up the body of Christ? You intentionally did that. It's so easy for us to think in terms of what I get and what's going to happen to me and how people treat me. And, and sometimes people drift away from the church and they drift away from the church and they complain about what the church is not doing for them when they haven't lifted a finger to do anything for anyone else, to serve anyone else, to reach out to anyone else, to call anyone else, to write to anyone else, to hug someone else, to pray with or for someone else. What did uh, was John F. Kennedy say? What not not what your country can do for you, but you can do for your country, right? When was the last time you answered that question? What can you do for the body of Christ? Because God is willing to help you and to enable you to do that. That's the point of this passage. He is your shade by your right hand he will protect you he'll watch over you he'll enable you he'll help you to do that to accomplish those things even as he worked with his people and helped his people to make their journey up to jerusalem i want to make a caveat to this this is a not a promise that we will never have trouble right for the pilgrims on their way to jerusalem the sun was still a very real threat that's protection and shade was necessary. It's not like God got rid of the sun or he got rid of the cold in the evening. We'll still feel the heat of the sun by day and we'll still feel the cold at night. The promise is not that we'll never experience trouble. It is that trouble will never overwhelm us. That we'll ultimately be victorious. Paul says this again in Romans chapter eight, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he goes on. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Don't miss this. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword are all things that they experienced. That's his point in Romans chapter 8. It's not that they went without those things. It's that they experienced those things. He says, for your sake, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. These things will happen in life. But what's the promise? Verse 37, Romans chapter 8. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. Again, nor anything else in creation. Why? Because God is the maker of heaven and earth. Nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The point is, though we may experience and suffer distress in life, the Lord is an ever-protecting help for us. His shade will protect us from being destroyed by the enemy. His shade will enable us to accomplish the work he has designed for us. His shed blood ultimately will help us on our way home. That leads us to our final point. Again, we praise the Lord because he's a help for his people. He will never slumber. He is a shade for us. Finally, he is our savior. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He says again, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. We wouldn't worry too much about our life if there were no such thing as evil. The pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem wouldn't worry about their lives and the lives of their families if there were no such thing as evil. But that's the world in which we live. There were all kinds of evil that could befall them. Again, dangers from robbers, dangers from wildlife, danger on the terrain they traveled, danger from the elements. The Lord is again referred to as a keeper of his people. He is the one who will keep us from evil. He'll keep our life. In other words, the point is not that he will prevent us again from encountering evil, but that he'll keep us. He'll watch over us. He'll guard our life so that evil doesn't prevail against us. The psalmist has a greater perspective in view here. He's certainly concerned with present-day evil, but much more than present-day evil, he's concerned with whether or not that evil will ultimately, ultimately prevail against us. Look at the next verse. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. He has an eternal perspective in mind. He references they're going out and they're coming in. This is another one of those poetic tools to signify two parts of the whole. They're going out and they're coming in. Yes, all of their travel, all of their pilgrimage to and from Jerusalem. The Lord will protect them in all of their journeys. But he goes on from this time forth and forevermore. Again, he uses the same tool, two parts of the whole. He has in mind the whole of their existence, both now and for eternity. The Lord is the one to keep them through it all. You may be thinking, well, they're just traveling to Jerusalem to worship. Why would they be thinking about eternity at that point? Isn't that the nature of true faith? The writer of Hebrews seemed to think so. And speaking of the faithful in the so-called hall of faith in Hebrews 11, the Holy Spirit says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, not having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus Make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been speaking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It is a part of the nature of true faith to desire a better, a heavenly city that has been prepared for us by God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that we are to consider ourselves citizens of heaven second peter chapter 3 peter says according to his promise we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells that verse astounds me because this present heaven and present earth we know cannot be characterized by righteousness certainly not righteousness is defined by the word of god it's easy to understand why there's a need for a new heaven and a new earth Revelation 21 speaks of the glory of this new heaven and new earth and of the new Jerusalem. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What's the point of all this? The people of God were commanded to go up to Jerusalem to make a pilgrimage, to worship the Lord in obedience to the law. But the lessons that they learned during this pilgrimage, for us, has great spiritual value. We are also pilgrims. We are aliens and strangers in this land. We're citizens of heaven. We have been called to journey home through unfamiliar and sometimes enemy territory. There are dangers. Sometimes dangers come from within and sometimes they come from without. Nevertheless, our confidence for this journey lies not in our ability to navigate through the complexities of life, but rather our confidence rests in the person of God and in the fact that he is with us. Listen again to the text in Psalm 121, the Lord will keep you from all evil he will keep your life do you believe that do you believe that the Lord will keep your life you might say well I know the Bible says it but sometimes I wonder sometimes I wonder because the sickness that I'm experiencing is just too much it's been too severe it's been too long is this really what God wants for me is this how my life is going to be Sometimes I wonder if my own sin is too much. I keep struggling with the same thing over and over again. Will God accept me through all of that? Will he really let me into heaven? Listen again to the text, the Lord, the, I am the pre-existent, self-existent one, the creator of heaven and earth. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. We all know the story of Christianity as believers. We know the gospel. Sometimes it's necessary for us to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have sin, we acknowledge, and confess that we have sin as believers. We confess with Romans, Paul in Romans 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We do not live righteously and thus we earn death. We earn rejection from God. We earn exclusion from his kingdom. But because God is rich in mercy, because God is gracious, he sent his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus was sent to be not a temporary momentary salvation, but as it says in Hebrews, he has become the source of eternal salvation for those who believe. The salvation that we've been given by God in Christ is an eternal salvation. It's not a salvation that will ever fail. It's not a salvation that will ever falter. It will not wither. It will not become moth or rust, rusted. It will not be stolen away by the enemy. This is an eternal salvation that we have from God. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope in Christ is not a dead hope. It's not a potential hope. It's not a possible hope. It's a living hope. In fact, Peter will say later in that chapter that we are being kept by the power of God for that salvation that is going to be revealed in the last time. And again, the text in Psalm 121, verse 8, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life because you belong to his son, because you've been bought by his son, because his son paid his precious blood for your forgiveness, because his son rose again from the dead to indicate that payment has been made in full and accepted. We have a living hope in him from this time forth and forevermore. Perhaps one of the most challenging aspects of a life of faith is knowing, not knowing what will come tomorrow. We know what's going to happen in the big picture tomorrow and eternity, but tomorrow, Monday morning, we don't know what's going to happen. And our minds are so talented that they can invent all kinds of terrible things that may or may not happen tomorrow. All kinds of ways for us to become anxious and to lose hope. But we have to remember as we walk again, as we walk this road on the way to the celestial city, that we have a living hope. We have been given eternal salvation. We have been promised and assured by the Lord, the one who is our helper, our watcher, our guardian, that he will keep our life from this time forth and forever. I wonder if you've trusted him this morning. I wonder if you know in your heart of hearts that you have trusted in the one who has proclaimed himself in this text to be the help, the guardian, the keeper of his people. I wonder for those of you who have trusted in him, if you continue to trust in him, if you continue to have confidence in the one who is our helper. This psalm, again, is a reminder that we ought to continually lift up our eyes to the hills from which comes our help. And that our help comes from the Lord, the preexistent, self-existent God who revealed himself to Moses, the creator God, the maker of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who delivered that great nation from the powerful Egypt, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who enabled him to to minister and to serve, who strengthened him to even go to the cross, a criminal's cross, even though he committed no sin. The one who has raised him as Lord over all things. We are encouraged from this text to remember to lift our eyes to him. He will never slumber he will never be indifferent to your needs. He has a singular focus to work all things together for your good. He is a shade to protect your right hand, whether by day or by night. He is your savior. He paid the ultimate price for you. He gave his very life, and thus, there's no thing that he would withhold from you today. I'll leave you with this quote. Psalm 121 invites those who recite the psalm to consider from whence comes their help. The correct answer is God, of course. But to speak it is one thing, to believe it is another. The psalmist assures those who pray this psalm that we do not walk alone. The maker of heaven and earth journeys with us as our helper. He says, John Ortberg reminds us that scripture alternates between hair-raising risks and assurances of impregnable security. And when we look at the lives of great followers of God, we see this combination of breathtaking risks with an almost brazen confidence of being safe in God's hands. He says, Ortberg mentions these moments in biblical history when people journeyed with God amidst risks. Moses defied Pharaoh. Israel occupied the promised land. David challenged actions. David challenged Goliath. The poor bands of disciples followed Jesus. Paul sat in a Roman prison. None of these actions make sense unless the actors all understood from whence came their help. Unless they all understood that they were in the watch care of a great big god and he says the same is true for us the risk-taking journey making path we walk as christians are informed by the claims of psalm 121 while the paths we walk and the lives we live may be fraught with challenges we're not forced to confront them alone for we know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of god again romans eight thirty-nine. we have confidence that the maker of heaven and earth stands as guardian watching over our going out and our coming in, both now and forevermore. End quote. The Lord is our helper. And I would encourage you once again, whatever you need this morning, whatever help you need, the Lord is with you. Just lift your eyes to him. Amen. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the reminder that you are a help to your people. Thank you for the reminder from your word that you have not left us to fend for ourselves alone, but as we celebrate so joyfully around the Christmas season that you are Emmanuel, God with us. Father, I pray that you'd help your people to continually lift up their eyes to the hills from whence their help comes, knowing that their help comes from the Lord, our God. We pray this in Jesus' blessed name, amen. Well, let's stand.